we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, and I hope that you can turn there with me. So again, the book of Hebrews, it's written to Hebrews so that they would stop acting like Hebrews, right? And in chapter 8, we looked at the old covenant of God with the Jewish people. We looked at Exodus a bit. We looked at Moses and the laws that God had given him, what the tabernacle was supposed to look like, what sacrifice was supposed to look like. And as we looked through chapter 8, at the end there, it basically said that the old covenant was obsolete. The old covenant was obsolete. It's no more in need. It's no more of use. And now Jesus Christ has authored in the new covenant, which we are a part of. Those of us who say we're going to heaven when we die, those of us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, it's all because of the new covenant which Jesus Christ has authored in. The old one being obsolete. We talked about that a little bit, right? Having a computer with Windows 95 on it compared to a brand new computer today, right? Those old Macs that was just green and light green and dark green screens, right? You'd be playing Oregon Trail and you have your huge floppy disk drive. Those things are obsolete now. You can think of social media, right? Nobody hops on their MySpace anymore to see what's going on. It's obsolete. And the old covenant, it's obsolete. And hopefully as we look into it a little bit more this evening, we can continue to thank the Lord. It's obsolete, but God brought it and used it for a reason. You see, it was a great symbol to the Jewish people and a symbol to us today that the wages of sin is death. Before we dive in again, let's turn to the book of Romans. And there we get that very important verse for us. And some people think that, The only way to wipe away sin or take care of sin or damage is through time. Some people think the only way to get rid of sin or bad things is to do good works. Some people think that you have to pay it forward and now you do something different or you pay money or you live a good life. Some people think that there's many ways to get rid of wrongs and sins that we've done. But the Bible says, hey, there's only one way. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May that be just repeating in our minds as we read through Hebrews chapter 9 this evening. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're here now in Hebrews chapter 9, and hopefully as we go through, you'll see why we looked at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. We'll read the first seven verses in Hebrews 7, and then we'll come back and start breaking it apart. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, And the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, 
in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot speak now in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So we come back to verse 1, and here it's telling us some of the pieces of furniture that were in the original tabernacle. And again, if you're reminded of last week when we were together, the tabernacle is a model of the throne room of God. So for all purposes, these priests... The high priest and all the priests within the tribe of Levi, they were messing with the model, right? They were playing with the model. They were playing Madden instead of being in the NFL, right? They were playing with their little model cars instead of being a mechanic. They were building uh, rocket ships out of Legos instead of working with NASA. This is what these men were doing. They were part of the first covenant, and the first covenant, it had ordinances, right? You think of our city-wide ordinances that are going on and consistently changing. These men, through Moses and the whole people of Israel, they were given ordinances of how they needed to do their service and how the earthly sanctuary needed to look like. And again, there had to be sacrifice continually. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. You see, all throughout this chapter, we'll see that blood was shed, blood was shed, blood was sprinkled. Why is the blood so important? The blood is important because it symbolizes that something died. Something had to die. And if we had time to go through the whole book of Exodus, right, you would see that it had to be something perfect that died. It's not like they were just taking a blood sample and just pricking the little fingers of the sheep and sprinkling the blood and put a band-aid and say, all right, Lammy, you keep going, you survive, and you'll be okay. No, if, if you sinned, or should I say when you sinned, you would go to the high priest bringing the perfect animal that you brought, and the high priest would hold your hand, and you would hold the knife, and you would slit the animal's throat while your hand was on their head, and you would feel the blood flowing out of the animal. You would be hearing the animal crying. You would hear the last breath. You would feel the body trembling. You would feel all this death right in front of your eyes, reminding you the wages of sin is death. Every time I sin, something needs to die. And in this time period, if you wanted to be right with God, God provided a way to be right with him, but it required the blood of a perfect animal, right? And you get that even all the way back to Adam and Eve, the original sin, Adam and Eve with the fruit. And God, he killed an animal and he created those skins, that clothing for them. But in verse 2, it tells us the tabernacle was prepared, the first part, which is called the sanctuary here. It had the lampstand or what we can imagine as a menorah, right? The lampstand had seven branches, but it's not just candles in there. The priests, they had to tend to it. 
They would fill it with olive oil, and the olive oil would be burning in there. And that was the only light within the tabernacle, that first part, the sanctuary, which is also known as the holy place. So you had the lampstand, you had the table of showbread, and then you had the actual showbread. That was the first part where the priests would go in uh, many times. First they would go to this uh, laver, right, and they would go and they would wash their hands, they would cleanse their hands, and then they would go into the tabernacle or into the temple to do their priestly duties. But then there was a second veil, right? This is the same veil that in the temple when Christ died was torn in two, representing that now we don't have to just go in one time a year with God. Now we don't just go one time a year with God in fear and trembling to just atone for our sins. But now we can have a true relationship with God. That now Jesus is our mediator in heaven representing us to God and representing God to us. So behind this second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, many of us we refer to it as the holy of holies, right? And this area, it had a golden censer and it had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, it's only about three feet by two feet and two and a half feet high. It's not a a huge or ginormous box. And in there, it had the golden pot with the manna, the manna that fell from heaven that God would feed the people of Israel during their 40 years in the wilderness. It also had Aaron's rod that budded, showing that he was to be the high priest. He was the one that was supposed to lead the people to God. And then finally, it had the tablets of the covenant, or as we normally would call it, the Ten Commandments, right? You think of the movies and the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, right, and how God wrote on them. And these three things, they have specific meanings for us and also for the people of Israel. You see, the manna reminded Israel of God's provision and their ungratefulness. And if you're a note taker, these are great things to write down because this should remind us of us and our relationship with God. The manna reminded Israel of God's provision and their ungratefulness. Right? God was literally raining food down from the heavens. And all they would have to do is go and pick how much they wanted to eat for that day. And they would eat it. And then the next day the same thing would happen. Except for the Sabbath day. The day before the Sabbath it would rain and they would be able to collect enough for two days. And God provided for them. And then what did they do after a short time? They began to complain. Manna, 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 right? We're sick of this menu. We keep eating the same thing. We're sick and tired of this. And they were ungrateful and they were punished for their lack of gratitude to God. The second thing is Aaron's rod that budded. And this reminded Israel of their rebellion against God's authority. Again, they were fighting, they were jockeying for position, they wanted to elect their own people, and God had to show through Aaron that he was the one. They were rebelling against God. Again, hopefully you're drawing the picture there for us, how God always provided and yet we were ungrateful, and how now next we rebelled against God's authority. People of Israel, very similar to us. And finally, the tablets of the covenant. You see, the Ten Commandments, it reminded Israel of their failure to keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. You see, family, is anyone watching perfect? No one is perfect. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
God made it so simple for the people of Israel. Just ten commandments they would have to follow for their lives and they would be perfect. But they couldn't. They could not handle it. Then when Jesus comes right, he, he puts it all into two easy commandments. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Just two things we have to do and we would be perfect and right with God. And yet we can't. We can't in and of ourselves. We can't be perfect before God. That's why we need a sacrifice. The people of Israel, they would sacrifice the animals. But now Jesus came and he's the perfect sacrifice for us. Then in verse 5 it tells us, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. And you see, the mercy seat was in a sense guarded by these cherubim. And again, this is a picture of the throne room of God. That the cherubim, these powerful angels, they were guarding and protecting the mercy seat. In the tabernacle, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year, as we read in verse 6 and 7, the high priest would come in with bells tied around the bottom of his tunic or his dress, if you would, right? And he would have bells, he would have pomegranates, and he would come in and he would sprinkle the blood sacrifice for his sins first and then for the sins of the people. You see, it's interesting because the priest would offer a bull for his own sin, but it would be a goat for the sins of the people. Again, reminding us that pastors are not perfect. In fact, God's word warns us that pastors and teachers are held to a higher and a stricter judgment. But hey, let's turn to Exodus chapter 25. And here we see God telling the people of Israel of this mercy seat and of the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus chapter 25. And in verse 17 through 22. It tells us, right, this is the building plans, the blueprints for the Ark of the Covenant and for the rest of the temple. If you really want to get into the tabernacle, you can read the chapters before Exodus 25 and the chapters after Exodus 25 if you're into blueprints. Hey, parents, if you're bored at home with your kids, in fifth grade, the project I had in Bible class was to build a tabernacle model, right? And some normal kids, they did it with construction paper. Some kids, they did it even with, now it sounds like really bad and evil, but they did it with toilet paper rolls, right? They did it with bounty rolls and construction paper and cardboard. But my mom, she worked in an architect's office, you see. My mom, she went to school for interior design. So my mom did not allow me to build my tabernacle model with cardboard and and, uh paper, right? No, my mom made me build my model to scale, right? I had a little scale on the side of it saying, hey, every one meter equals one half an inch, right? And we built this thing to scale out of wood, out of fabric, out of clay. It drove me insane, but hey, I got an A in the class, so again, mom, thank you, right? And for us to know what the tabernacle looks like, because that's what the temple looked like, and once we get to heaven, this is what the throne room of God looks like. So again, all that to say, parents, if you're bored at home with your kids, hey, think about building a model of the tabernacle. I know you parents are busy as it is. But hey, Exodus 25, verse 17, it tells us, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, 
and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and make the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherub at the two ends of it in one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherub shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And verse 22, it's beautiful, but it's also sad at the same time. Verse 22, it says, and there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherub, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything, which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So it's beautiful to us, man. We hear, wow, God, he wants to speak to the people of Israel there on the mercy seat. But the thing is, only one man was allowed within the Holy of Holies. And that one man was only allowed into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And when he walked in, it wasn't to just hang out. He didn't bring a lawn chair in there to hang out with God or spend time with God. He was in there with fear and trembling. Again, as we mentioned, he had bells tied to his tunic. And I think he'd be shaking them on purpose so that the people in the back would know, hey, he's still alive. He still has a pulse because if he had sin that was not confessed, he would drop dead in a moment, right? You hear bells, 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 and then you just boom. And then, right, and then they pull him out. And now imagine the next guy. Now the next guy would become the high priest and he would still have to go in there and atone for the sins of the people, right? Talk about a stressful job. It was not a comforting thing to go into the Holy of Holies. Let's read verse 6 and 7 and then we'll again talk about this ceremony, during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Verse 6 and 7. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. We mentioned that adding oil to the lamps. They would change the bread in the table of showbread. They would work in that first area. But then in verse 7 it says, But into the second part, the Holy of Holies, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So David Guzik, he says, The ancient Jewish rabbis wrote of how the high priest did not prolong his prayer in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement because it might make the people think that he had been killed. And when he came out, he threw a party for all his friends because he had emerged safely from the presence of God. Again, they were stressed out to have to go into the presence of God. They were fearful. They were afraid of going into the presence of God. I don't know if you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And we see what happened to the Nazis when they opened the Ark of the Covenant and they melted and their eyeballs exploded and all that craziness, right? That's not exactly what would happen, but the people would drop dead. And there was a fear of God within them. All that to say today, we would probably do a little better with more fear of God within us. But this, this meeting once a year with God, this did not bring true relationship between the people of Israel and God. It simply atoned for their sin. It simply appeased their sin. It simply covered their sin. 
The high priest wouldn't go in there with his tea and coffee and highlighters with his Torah and sit in there and spend time with God. It was, he went in there for only one purpose, to atone for the sins committed in ignorance. That was the only reason he went in there. But now Jesus came, right? And he died for us offering the perfect sacrifice so that we may have life, so that we may have joy, so that we may have a new identity, so that we can have a relationship with God, so that our sins can be atoned for. What an amazing miracle Jesus has done for us. And now we can. We can come to God as a son and a dad. Right? That fathers, I hope you don't tell your sons, they only come to me with blood, right? The priest couldn't go in there without blood. Right away, he would drop dead, right? Hey, son, don't come near me unless you bring me my favorite beer, right? Son, don't come near me unless you bring me my favorite drink. Son, don't come near me unless you bring me a $50 bill. Son, don't come near me unless you bring me my favorite tacos, right? Hopefully, as dads, that's not what you do. You love to just spend time with your kids. Relationship. Friendship. Family, this is what God truly desires For you and I. Because if all he cared about was simply just your sins being atoned for, it was kind of working. We know it wasn't perfect. We know it wasn't for forever. But it was kind of working. But God wanted more. God wanted to have more Abrahams, right? A friend of God. God wanted to have more Davids, a man after God's own heart. God wanted to have more Gideons, a mighty man of valor. And that's God's desire for you, to have a relationship with you, to have a friendship with you. That not only should we come to God in fear and trembling because we're sinners and we're nothing apart from him. But now we can come and we could just abide with him. Right? John 15. Now we can just sit with him. Some of the sweetest times as a dad with my kids is not when we're working on certain projects. It's not when we're doing certain things. Lots of times it's when we're just hanging out, watching something on TV, and they're just laying on my chest. That's some of my favorite times with my kids when they fall asleep on me. Now, again, my kids, they're all one years to six years old. When they get older, probably won't be my favorite time of life of them falling asleep on my chest, right? But that's what God desires with us is to just have a relationship. Some of you right now, maybe you're feeling way off because, hey, I'm not serving right now. Who even am I if I'm not serving God? Your identity in God is not your service to him. Your identity in God is that you're a son or a daughter, that he's your Abba, that he's your daddy. This is your identity in him. Again, I have to pray for my life as I step into the role of being a senior pastor that that is not my identity in God. That one day I'll step down from the position, hopefully giving it to someone else that they'll run with it. And now it's not time for me to go crazy, man. Who am I? No, I'm a son of God. That's who we are, family. That's what God desires with us is to have that relationship, is to abide with us. That we don't have to come to him in fear and trembling every time that we're going to drop dead because we're sinners. But Jesus came to once and for all pay our sins for all of eternity. That now we can abide with him and have that friendship and relationship with God You see, the Day of Atonement, that ceremony, the only sins it covered was one year of sins. And not all sins, but only sins committed in ignorance. 
Again, they thought, hey, if you sinned, you would want to come and sacrifice and be right with God. This was only for the sins committed in ignorance that people didn't realize they were sinning. But Jesus came and he paid for all our sins once and for all. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, right? John the Baptist and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who Jesus was and is and will always be. Verse 8 through 10, it tells us the Holy Spirit indicating this. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with the foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Now when, here when it says the time of Reformation, it's not talking about the time until Calvin and Luther and those great men of faith. But it's talking about until the time that things were set right. All of these ordinances, the food to eat and not drink, all the various washings, all these laws that God had put, it was only there until Jesus Christ came. Again, an important verse for us as people today continue to grasp for religion, right? Religiosity. I am closer to God because I do X, Y, or Z. Because I don't trim the corners of my beard. Because I don't touch any grapes. Because I wear a head covering. Because I have my prayer tassels. Because I celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday or Monday or whatever it may be. No, Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and now there's a new covenant. There's a new contract between us and God. We looked at that last week. The old contract, the old covenant was you have to do these works or else you will die. Right? We looked at those verses. Now the new covenant is Jesus died and did the works so that we can be right with God. That's the new covenant. Jesus, he came, he did all the work. Now we just have to abide. Just hang out with him. Just fall in love with him. That quote from last time, right? How do you get a man to actually keep the law? Fall in love with the lawgiver. That is the way that you keep the law more and more is just fall in love with the lawgiver. So verse 9, it tells us it was symbolic. This was just a symbol for the realities of heaven. The word here, symbol, it's the same word in the Greek, parabola, which is where Jesus uses these Parables, same word, symbol and parable, same word in the Greek. And this is where Jesus would tell us earthly stories that had heavenly meanings. So the tabernacle, the temple, the law given to the people of Israel, this was all an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? The three major holidays within Judaism, they all point to who Jesus Christ is and the work of Christ. The working of the Passover, right? The angel of death coming and they had to kill a perfect lamb and put the blood of a perfect lamb on the doorpost, right? What did that represent? Jesus dying for us, being the perfect lamb of God. And now as his blood is on our lives, now death passes over us and now we have eternal life for forever. It's all just a symbol, Again, the work within the tabernacle, the work within the temple, it is just a symbol. 
for the day that Jesus would come and sacrifice his life and save all of mankind. Anyone who would be willing to accept that free gift of God. Why do we need that free gift of God? Because the wages of sin is death. And now we see here, it tells us that it was not enough. It was not enough to make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So again, the high priest would go through all this work, and yet it couldn't make him perfect. It couldn't make him complete before God. That's what it truly means. It's not perfect that he's sinlessly perfect or any of that mumbo jumbo. It's saying that he could not be complete in God even to the point that his own conscience was still messed up. The inner man before Jesus came and these people would sacrifice these animals to be right with God, the inner man was still messed up. The conscience was still jacked up, right? And throughout the New Testament, there's warnings for our conscience, that our conscience can become seared, that our conscience isn't always right with God. There's warnings for our conscience. But Jesus came, died, resurrected, so now he can wash the inner man. And now when we're saved, we get a portion of the Holy Spirit, and now we're running on the Holy Spirit instead of running on the flesh. And then we can pray and ask the Lord, Lord, would you fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit? God, would you baptize me with your Holy Spirit? Lord, would you fill me to overflowing above measure with your Holy Spirit? And again, the inner man continues to be washed away and now we're filled with this new spirit. So again, another way where the old covenant and the old sacrifice wasn't enough. It's not better than Jesus. Jesus came and not only is he able to cover our sins, but he wiped them away and he's able to wash the inner man, right? Well, you know, how do we cleanse our mind? It's by taking in God's word, God's word cleansing and washing away our mind. We can pray like David prayed, Lord, create in me a clean heart, right? Psalm 51. And what we're saying there is, Lord, there's nothing good in me. I'm a sinner. I'm a horrible person. Every Christian, guess what? Is a terrible person. But then Jesus came and Jesus continues to work in their life. And now we should begin to see Jesus more and more and more. Right? Every Christian should be able to say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I messed up. I was wrong. Why? Because we're sinners. Saved by grace. And we need Jesus to give us the clean and the new heart. Some people, they think they're Christians because they act differently on the outside. But yet in the inside, it's still all messed up. Right? And how did Jesus measure sin? He didn't just say the outward. But he said, if you think in your heart, if you're thinking in your mind, right? If you see a beautiful girl and now you're thinking evil and sexual things. He says, hey, you've already had sex with her. You've already committed adultery. If you see someone and you can't stand them and you hate them and you're in traffic and you wish your car suddenly turned into a, a bulldozer and you could just run over everybody, he says, hey, you've already committed murder in your heart. Again, the, the true law that Jesus brought, it's impossible for us to follow. But yet we can fall on our face and say, Jesus, your sacrifice was enough for me. Jesus, your sacrifice is still enough for me. And now we're freed from that conscience of guilt. 
Christian, did you know that? Jesus, God, they don't want you to constantly be walking around with a guilty conscience. If you're walking around with a conscience and you're always guilty, I can't believe I did this, I can't believe I did that, man, I'm so terrible, man, I'm so horrible, that's not what Christ has for you. If you feel guilty because you've sinned recently, confess it. James 5.16, confess your faults, confess it to somebody else, confess it to the Lord, and he'll be just and faithful to forgive you of all unrighteousness. There may be consequences to it, but you're forgiven. Now you don't have to have a guilty conscience anymore. Right? When we do something wrong, what's the first thing the Holy Spirit tells us to do? Hey, confess your sins. Say you're sorry. What does our flesh tell us to do? Whatever you do, do not confess your sins. Right? Whatever you do, do not say that you're sorry. Deny it till the death. Just lie. And that's the battle within us. But Jesus has come to cleanse our conscience. So now we're not run by guilt, but we're run by the Holy Spirit. We're being run, right, by a new identity that, hey, God is my Abba. God is my daddy, right? And Jesus, he is my big brother. He is my master. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. Again, the old covenant, the old sacrifice, it wasn't even enough to make that high priest perfect or complete. Hebrews chapter 9. Now we'll read verse 11 through 14. And it tells us, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Again, the high priest, they would go into a tabernacle, a tent. The high priest, they would go into the temple made with hands. Again, an amazing building. But still, Jesus, he is the high priest of a temple that's in outer space, right? Not in outer space, but is in heaven. Is in the Holy of Holies. This is the tabernacle. This is the temple that Jesus serves in. In a better and more perfect tabernacle. Verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves. But with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all. Having obtained eternal redemption. Again family this verse is so important for us. The high priest he would sacrifice that bull. That calf for his own sin, and then he would sacrifice the goat for the sins of the people. And that's how he would be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. But now Jesus came, and he sacrificed his own life, his own blood, and now he has received, he has obtained, he has fought and won eternal redemption. That should bring us so much joy and comfort, right? Think of a warranty, warranties, the jury's out, right? Whether they're just stealing your money and everything that you buy, it always breaks a day after the warranty's over. Or if they're legit and you actually save a ton of money in warranties. Nobody knows. But again, if you have a one-year warranty, a five-year warranty, a 10-year warranty, you're kind of relaxed until when? Year number six, year number 11. Then you're like, man, if this thing breaks, I got to pay for the whole thing. Now, Jesus, he came and he didn't give us a five-year redemption, he didn't give us a 10-year redemption. He didn't give us a redemption that only had three strikes in your eye. He gave us an eternal redemption. That now we're right with God. We just have to continue to be right with him, abide in him, confess our sins. And our redemption, hey guys, it is forever because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. 
His redemption, his sacrifice is greater than the old sacrifice. Again, book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew believers that were thinking about going back to their Judaism. And the author is telling him, hey, Jesus is better in every single way. He's greater than Judaism. Verse 13 and 14, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, family, he is the perfect sacrifice. All these animals that were sacrificed, they didn't go willingly. They didn't go conscious of what was happening, right? If you've ever had to butcher an animal or take an animal from life to death, if you've ever had to take a fish out of your fish tank, you take the first one out, and then what happens with the rest of them? They're all freaking out. They're all scared. They're all hiding in the aquarium into the different corners saying, don't touch me, right? But Jesus, he willingly offered his life. He willingly gave his life, right? He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. The power of Jesus Christ being the perfect sacrifice. And again, he's able to cleanse our conscience from dead works. Dead works, it means a couple of different things. A, the dead works of religion. He can cleanse our conscience from thinking, I have to do these things so that I can be right with God. No family, we are right with God because of what Jesus has done. And now we do works out of love and gratitude for him. That's why we work. Not so that we can be right with him. Not so we can even the scales. No, we do work because we're in love with him. Because we're so grateful and thankful for what he has done for us. But again, look at what one of the purposes is for us being cleansed. It's not so that you would be saved and just saved from hell. And you live with fire insurance and you do nothing on this planet for God. No, it's that we would serve the living God. And here service is not talking about that doulos or that slavery service to God. No, it's that we would all be like high priests with joy and gladness doing the work within the tabernacle. Doing the work within the temple. Doing the work within Calvary Chapel, Miami or whatever church that you're a part of. Because we're so grateful and thankful for Jesus cleansing us from dead works. Family, are you serving God? Are you serving the Lord? On Monday with young adults, we went through Acts 20, and there were two warning signs for us, two marks of a true believer. As we see Paul, there's no doubt he's a true believer. A, right, it's a love for God, a love for his word. But then secondly, there's a love for his people, a love to be around his people. doesn't matter if you're introvert or extrovert, right? Timothy, we know he had stomach issues. We know he had anxiety problems. We know that Paul was always telling him, hey, don't worry. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. Don't be timid. Paul, he's that type A personality. He didn't care about anyone or anything, and he's doing his thing. But both of them love to be with the body of believers. The second thing there is a love for serving God. We looked at that in Acts 20. How Paul says he didn't come to serve the churches, but he was serving God in all that he was doing. In his job, with his family, in church, all his work was service unto God. 
Again, family, that's a mark of a true Christian, that you love to serve the Lord. Again, there's gratitude there. Gratitude really, family, it's one of the the marks of revealing if you're truly saved or not. Are you grateful that a perfect man died for you? A perfect man did everything you couldn't do and he took on all the evil that you did do to give you the choice, the freedom to accept the free gift of God. What does that do within us? And again, this should remind us, why why did Jesus have to come? Why did all these little cute animals have to die, right? Because, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Let's turn to Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, it reminds us, hey, why did God have to do all of this? Isaiah 59, and we will look at verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2, it tells us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Again, why did Jesus have to die? Why did people during the old covenant have to sacrifice these perfect animals that did nothing wrong? Family, it's because our sins have separated us from God. Us doing our will instead of God's will is revealing that we're at enmity with God. That we are enemies of God. We're on opposite sides of the war with God. But then Jesus came. Again, he died living a perfect life, sacrificing himself for us so that now we can be a part of God's team. And not just soldiers in his army, but again, sons and daughters. God wants to adopt you into his family. Next, let's turn to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll look at 1 John chapter 1 and verses 6 through 10. Again, remind us. Some people say, man, if God is so good and perfect, why does he allow evil? If God is so good, why, why do all these bad things happen to people? And family, the thing is, we're not good. We're all terrible. We're all sinners. And he makes it to rain on the just and the unjust, Right? But he made a way for us to be right with him, to be adopted into his family. First John chapter 1 and verse 6 through 10, it tells us, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, family, if we walk in darkness, you can't say that you're right with God. Right? How many rappers have explicit content all through their album and yet they have one song dedicated to God, a prayer to God. If you're walking in darkness, you can't say that you have fellowship and relationship with God. We went through Hebrews chapter 6 a couple weeks ago. A tough chapter. How do I know if I'm saved or not saved? Saved or not saved. Hey, walk in the light. 
If you're walking in the light, you have nothing to be fearful of. You have nothing to be worried of. But now if you're walking in darkness, if you're constantly sinning, if you're with a bad crowd, if you're constantly getting drunk, constantly getting high, constantly sleeping around, constantly watching pornography, constantly gossiping, constantly watching horrible things on television, there should be the fear of God within you. Because you can't say you have relationship with God and walk and live in darkness. And again, light and darkness, it's according to God's scripture. It's not according to what the world around us would say is right or wrong. Finally, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, again, it tells us we can read in verse 16. It says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, family, we're saved with the most precious substance that has ever existed on this planet. The blood of a perfect human. The blood of the Son of God. Right? So if you feel like your self-worth is terrible, that you're worthless, that no one loves you, no one cares for you. Hey, family, that's a lie from the devil. God himself was willing to give his only son to die so that he could have this friendship and relationship with you. So that your sins can be washed clean and so that you can be in heaven for all of eternity. That's what God's desire is for you. Now we go to verse 15. Then it says, And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the in- eternal inheritance. I wish we had time to go here. We've looked at this a couple times. You can go back to past teachings. How Jesus Christ is our mediator, right? He's the one that mediates between one party and another party that have had a breaking or friction or disagreement in their relationship. And Jesus came and he's the one who mediates our relationship with God through this new covenant. And what does he do? He has done all this so that we may receive The promise of the eternal inheritance, right? What do you think of when you hear that word inheritance? I think somewhere deep inside each of us, we're hoping for some just crazy rich honor uncle that we've never met. That by some miracle, they're going to write us into their will. And we're going to get the inheritance for their huge estate, grabbing a huge house and tons of money. And now we'll be able to socially distance ourselves on our private islands, right? That's what we're hoping for, this inheritance. But Jesus, he came and he died leaving an eternal inheritance for us. Verse 16 through 18, it tells us, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. 
For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. All these big words, verse 16 and 17, right? What it's telling us is for where there is a will, there must also be the necessity of the death of the person who wrote the will, right? A will, it's a living document. You could be written in the will, and the next day you could do something mean to your grandma, and now she can write you out of the will, right? That's what a will is. It's a living document. But now once the person dies, that's where we get that word will and testament. Now it becomes a testament. So now once they die, now the attorney comes out and says, okay, this is what this person receives. This is what this person receives. And now usually what happens? Tons of friction. No, you made them change it. You made them change it on their deathbed and all sorts of friction pops out of the family, out of nowhere. Unbelievers and believers. But here, the power of Jesus is that he, A, he died bringing his will into a testament. But then guess what? He resurrected, making sure that nobody forged or messed with his will and testament, family. And his will, his testament, is for us to have this friendship and relationship with God. That now we can come to him, not in fear and trembling, but fear and trembling, and a relationship and walk and love with him. Verse 18 through 20, it tells us, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the covenant of the blood which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's a lot here. But when Moses dedicated the first tabernacle and he dedicated the Ark of the Covenant and the laver and the table of showbread and the menorah and the book and all the priests, he got hyssop, he got a plant. And he's dipping it in blood and he's shaking it everywhere, right? Again, reminding us the wages of sin is death. Reminding us the only way that we can be purified, the only way that we can be cleansed from these mortal bodies of sin and flesh is by having the blood of Christ all over us. Some people, their first time in church, they think Christians are insane. We sing about blood. We sing about a fountain that its blood keeps coming out, right? We sing about blood. We love blood as Christians. Why? Because that's what cleansed us. That's what gave us remission of our sins. That's what cleansed us and made us right with God. That's why we have this, in a sense, love for the blood, right? For the blood of Jesus Christ because it washes me. It cleanses me. It's able to cleanse us from any type of sin, family. Able to cleanse you from any type of guilt. Murder, an affair, lying, cheating, stealing. The blood of Christ is able to cleanse you. But then as Jesus told many people when he healed them, go and sin no more. Verse 23, we continue. It tells us, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves 
with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of all of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is, hey, who do you want? You want the guy who has played with the model? Or do you want the guy that has played with the real thing? Who do you want running your, your job, right? A guy that has played house? A guy that has played lemonade stand? Or a man that has run a Fortune 500 company? Who do you want working on your car? A little kid that has played with remote control cars? Or a mechanic that has been taught and trained? Who do you want doing your operation, right? I love some of these commercials. Who do you want running your operation? A guy that just got his license back on? Or someone who's been practicing for years without a single problem? A guy that's the, the best of the best at playing operation and pulling the water out of the knee, right? Or a man who has been a doctor for decades? That's the question for us. Do you want a man to lead you to God? Or do you want the Son of God to lead you to God? Again, Jesus, he didn't go into the temple. He didn't go into the Holy of Holies. We know he went to the outsides of the temple. He never went inside to the Holy of Holies. But once he died, he went into the presence of God, into the true Holy of Holies. And once and for all, again, there are many believers who are Catholics, who love the Lord and love Jesus and serve them with all that they have. But here there's some scriptures that go completely against Mass. That every time we go to Mass, we're crucifying Christ again. Every time we have communion, Jesus is dying once again. No, God's Word tells us that He died once and for all. He put sin away once and for all. Again, family, that moment on the cross when He said paid in full, at that moment the perfect Lamb of God took on and paid for all the sins of mankind. The thousands of years before and all the thousands of years to come. One of the scholars, he said, it's as if all the sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple, they were IOUs. And then the day that Jesus died, their sins were now paid in full. Again, Jesus, he has paid for our sins. And now Jesus dying once and for all to pay for our sins, it gives us another principle. Because we and of ourselves, we can't pay for our sins once and for all. We can't say, hey, I'm just going to give up my life and that's it. All my sin is paid for. David Guzik, he says, this principle of sacrifice explains why the suffering of hell must be eternal for those who reject the atoning work of Jesus. They are in hell to pay the penalty of their sin. But as imperfect beings, they're not able to make a perfect payment. If, and if the payment is not perfect, then it has to be continual and constant. Indeed, for all of eternity. A soul could be released from hell the moment its debt of sin was completely paid for. But this is just another way of saying that it would never be paid for. Again, family, we're not perfect. There is only one perfect 
offering. There's only one perfect lamb. So if we go to hell, if we reject the sacrifice of Jesus, if we reject abiding with him, if we reject the Jesus being our Lord and Savior, we have to pay for our sins for all of eternity. Over and over and over again. Day after day for all of eternity. Verse 27 and 28, it tells us, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment. Every time I read this verse, I think of our friend Pastor Jimmy O'Keefe. We were having doulos, we were having a ministry time with the youth, and he read this, this verse and he gave basically the perfect explanation for it. He said, YOLO, and then comes judgment, right? You only live once, and then comes judgment. That's the way it is. Some people, they use YOLO, and they say, hey, I do whatever I want. I eat whatever I want, whatever. You only live once. No, family. You only live once, then you die, and then comes judgment. And again, family, death, it's the great equalizer. Death doesn't care about your status on earth. Death doesn't care about how many orphans you paid for and how many Hail Marys you did. You die once, and after that, everything is fixed and settled. There's no more work that can be done. There's no more repentance that can be had. The only question that will be asked is, did you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Was your sin atoned for? That's the only thing that's going to happen. That's the only question that's going to transpire. And depending how you answer that question, you're going to go into one judgment or another. There's the judgment for all the sinners who never accepted Jesus Christ. And then there's another judgment for those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm always reminded of this poem. Read it later on after the service. Google it. It's from C.T. Studd. has a super cool last name, right? But the poem, it says, Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. That's the only thing that's going to matter, family. Finally, verse 28. So Christ was offered once. To bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And again, in these two verses, we've written off the fact that within mass, within Catholicism, they think that they're putting Jesus on the cross once again. He's sacrificing once again. And the also thing that we're putting to rest is reincarnation. Man only lives once and they die once. You don't come back as a mosquito or a cow. Or anything else. We live once and then we die. And now we are to eagerly await for his second appearance. Which is apart from sin for salvation. A little bit for us to unpack here. First, the second coming of Jesus. It's for one reason and one reason only. Salvation. Saving, pulling, freeing the bride of Christ from the seven year tribulation. And then the third time when Jesus comes. He's not going to be coming with mercy. He's not going to be coming as the sacrifice. He's not going to be coming as the humble servant. He's going to be coming as the reigning king. At that point, he is pure righteousness. And either you accepted him and you're on his team or you rejected him and now you are enemies of the Lord. Christian, are you eagerly awaiting his second appearing? Charles Spurgeon, he says, it ought to be a daily disappointment when our Lord does not come. Instead of being, as I fear it is, a kind of foregone conclusion that he will not come just yet. Do you have that desire for heaven? Do you have that desire? Do you tell your friends, hey, 
perhaps today, maybe today is the day that Jesus is going to come and take us home. And I hope that it's today.